0: can be seated i invite you to open your bibles to the book of psalms psalm 51 today psalm 51 several times over the course of my ministry i've been called to the hospital and it goes something like this almost all of these occasions are the same pastor so-and-so has had a heart attack and i'm thinking not that guy he seems to be really healthy You go to the hospital and find that uh, they found a blockage or many blockages and the surgery is performed and often I'm there with the the family when the doctor comes out to tell how the surgery went or how the angioplasty went, whatever the procedure they did on this person. and This person I thought who was a picture of health now in the hospital undergoing this surgery, the doctor comes out and will say to to the spouse, usually it's the wife because the guys seem to do this more often than the ladies... Your husband's had a heart attack. It's been serious. We've had to do this or we're going to have to do that. He's going to have to change his lifestyle. He's going to have to quit smoking. He's going to have to quit eating the way he does. He's going to have to exercise. And, and almost always that, that spouse will say, yes, this has been a wake-up call for us. And hours or days later, I get to visit with that man who's had that heart attack or that heart procedure. and He says, pastor, this is a wake-up call for me. And it lasts for a little while. Some guys stay faithful. Others go right back to the same patterns and habits. I wanted to go to Psalm 51 today. I I prayed about this this day and this kind of an intermission between a couple of sermon series. And and I've been praying, God, what would you have me say to the church today? And I just felt impressed that God took me to this passage and and said, let's do a wake-up call those of you who grew up in the cell phone age don't know what this is, but for years when you go stay in a motel, you would call the front desk and say, I'd like to leave a wake-up call because we didn't have the alarms with us. This is one of those wake-up calls today. Psalm 51. The context of this passage is King David after he had been called on the carpet he'd been caught he'd been confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba now you need to understand these words are written by a man who not only committed adultery but a man who who committed murder to cover up the adultery and Nathan confronts him and says you're the one David you're wrong and David broken-hearted cries out to God this is his prayer be gracious to me God According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. Three words for sin there in those two verses. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Look at this, verse 4. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed I was guilty I was when I was born I was sinful when my mother conceived me Surely you desire integrity in the inner self you teach me wisdom deep within verse 7 purify me with hyssop that branch that was used at the Passover to paint the blood off the door over the doorposts of the homes when the death angel passed through Egypt purify me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow They've been saying, let that blood be applied to me. Let me hear joy and gladness. Our choir just reminded, of that, reminded us of that. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. In verse 10 through 13, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David had to pray that because he lived in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, where God had not yet sent His Holy Spirit to permanently indwell believers. That happened at Pentecost. Now, whenever you get saved, a person gets saved, God's spirit dwells within them and stays permanently. So we don't have to worry about that prayer, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. But he says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways. Sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. We've been doing that all morning, haven't we? Wasn't well, it great to come and just let, your, just let it rip? God, I'm singing of your righteousness. Somebody says, what is praise? It's, it's just bragging on Jesus. That's all it is. Just letting it flow. God, we love you. My tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise And then he says this in verse 16, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. So he is saying, I'm not just to go through the motions. I'm not just to mechanically bring this ritual sacrifice to you like all of our people have done through generation after generation. I'm not supposed to mechanically be religious. That's my paraphrase for that. In verse 17, "The the sacrifice that is pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. A wake-up call. Recently, our mission team went up to South Dakota and visited a church there to try to encourage. And and I I tell you what, I, I was taken back by the struggles of this church, this congregation that's trying to meet the needs of their community. I prayed throughout that week. God, what would I do if I was there? What would I, what would I say if I were the pastor? And I tried to give some encouragement and wisdom, but bottom line is I prayed, I thought, really the only answer for this congregation is just for Jesus to get in the middle of it. We can strategize and plan and organize and do ministry and do conferences and all of that stuff may be good, but the, what, what every congregation needs is just for Jesus to get in the middle of it. when we're desperate and we cry out David was desperate when he says God be gracious to me I have messed up big time God I just need you to restore me a wake-up call well I've used the word awakened so let's see if we can get through this today the first thing that David does and all of these things we need to be doing if we're gonna wake up to what God has for this church don't get me wrong things are going well Things are good at Coastal Oaks Church, but often good becomes the enemy of great. I can't help but wonder what else God wants to do with us. What else God has in store for this congregation? Letter A, accept responsibility for my sin I must accept responsibility for my sin. Before God can do a work, before God can restore and revive and renew and use us to impact this culture like we've been talking about for the last few weeks, I need to be willing to accept responsibility for my sin. David says it there. Be gracious to me, God. Wash away my guilt, verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, I'm always conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. For God to do a work in us and through us, we first have to say, God, we have sinned. British evangelist Gypsy Smith was asked, how do you start a revival? I love his answer. I've used this for years. This is what he said. He said, you go home and you take a piece of chalk and you draw a huge circle on the floor and then you get on your knees in the middle of that circle and you say, God, start revival in this circle. And he said, don't get up till God answers. Folks, what does that have to do with programs and methodologies and systems? Nothing. It has to do with a person coming to the place where we say, God, I acknowledge that I have sinned. We pray often. We have a great intercessory prayer ministry in this church. We pray every Sunday morning. There are people praying right now. People pray during the week. And we're praying for God to do a work in other people's hearts. We also need to pray, God, do a work in my heart. Start right here. Accept responsibility. The reason this culture we live in is so dark is because the church has stopped being the light in the culture. Folks, we say it all the time. Don't blame the darkness for being dark. It is is very popular today to blame the darkness for the mess we're in in our culture, in in our nation. Don't blame. That's just what darkness does. It's dark. The reason darkness is overwhelming is because the light is not shining. And I've got to accept responsibility for that. Second truth, I need to want God's intervention. I need to want it. I need to have a desire for it. Look at verse 10. David says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's he's reaching out. He's crying out to God. God, I want you to stir me. I don't just want this, this nation to change. I don't just want my city to come to Christ. I know it's got to begin with me, so God, start here. I want you to do a work. But folks, God wants to do a work more than you could ever imagine. I was reading in Ezekiel this week in my reading through the Bible. I tell you what, man, I plow through Ezekiel. I mean, I plow through Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those, those passages are so deep and so intense. But in Ezekiel, this, the, the, Ezekiel's writing, and, and this is what the Word says. Do you think that I see, I like, excuse me, do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked and evil ways. That's Ezekiel 18, 23. God God is saying through Ezekiel the prophet, there's judgment coming, but I'm not delighting in that. What I want is for my people to turn to me and trust me and walk with me. I want my people to want God's intervention. That's what God is saying. Jeremiah Lampier was a man living in New York City in the 1850s and they were living under the shadow of the war, and there was, there was depression, The long lines for people trying to get food. Things were not going well. Crime was rampant in New York City. And he, God called him to be an evangelist to the city. So he started trying to preach, putting posters up, inviting people to meetings. Nothing was working. So he decided something impressed upon him. Just call. It's a business town. Let's call businessmen together to meet and have lunch. They're all going to have to eat lunch, and let's pray. So he put up some posters and invited men to come and have lunch and pray. And he opened up the doors of this place and sat there and waited and waited and finally one man walked in and sat down and they began to eat and pray and a couple other people walked by and saw it and that handful grew to 10 and that grew to 20 and businessmen came together and began to pray. And It grew so much that they outgrew that space. Somebody said, we need to to meet not just once a week but once a day. So they began to meet daily during the business week and God started A move. It's been called by some the Third Great Awakening, the Fulton Street Revival in New York City. It started where one person said, We just need to pray and seek God. We need to want His intervention. We need to want Him to stir us. Listen, you may want your neighbors and your co workers and your family members to come to Christ. It starts with you wanting God to work in your life. Can I say that again? You may want others that you know to come to Christ, but it begins with God doing a work in you. You need to want it. The next letter is letter A. I need to avail myself to God's creative hand. Avail myself to God's creative hand. Look at verse 10 again. Create in me a clean heart. God, you renew me. Verse 17, he says, I I need to come with a broken spirit and a humbled heart. Some translations say contrite heart. I need to say, God, here I am. I'm just clay. You're the potter. Shape me, mold me, make me. God needs to stir us. And I need to say, God, I'm ready. Jeremiah taught, God taught through Jeremiah, the potter and the clay, and the clay doesn't stand up and tell the potter how to shape it. The clay just says, okay, shape me. I need to say, God, I'm, I want your creative hand to work in my life. Ever go camping and the campfire burns down and it's, it's just some white coals and somebody comes up with a stick and stirs it and the flame starts up and you got the fire going again? That's what we're to say to God. We're to say, God, you find a, you find a stick somewhere and you stir these coals. The letter K, know the contrast between my sin and God's holiness. I need to understand there's a difference between who I am and what I've done in the holiness of God. He says in verse 11, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David had a sense of the holiness of God. He he had such an understanding that God was holy and he was sinful that he said, God, I, I can't bear the fact, the thought that your presence would be removed from me. But God, you're a holy God, and I'm a sinful man. And if you walk through this passage, look how many times David uses the word guilt or refers in in concept to the fact that that he's separated from God by his sin. I need to understand that God is a holy God. I'm sinful. I need to deal with the things God speaks to me about. I hope you never come to church on Sunday morning just hoping God does something in somebody else's life. Now, that's a good thing, right? But let's just imagine if everybody came to church Sunday morning hoping God did something else in somebody else's life. Who's he going to work with? Guess what happens every Sunday morning? Most of us show up here and we go through our mental checklist of everything's good in my life. Okay, God, I'm good. I'm going to sing my praises. And God, you let them have it. Because there's somebody that needs Jesus. There's somebody that needs the work of God. Instead of, oh God, I'm about to get together with the people of God and I'm about to cry out to you and I'm, I pray that the spotlight of your spirit would search my heart and soul. And reveal to me if there's anything between me and you. What would happen if we dealt with what God speaks to us about? Folks, it's the little things. It's the little things. When you've walked with the Lord for a while and you're able to check off the big things, you know, I'm doing the do's and I'm not doing the don'ts. I'm walking good. It's the little things that God begins to speak to your heart about that reveals where you really are with him. The band Van Halen. Anybody know Van Halen? Okay, all of us old folks, all right? They were one of the first bands to take their big, huge, 18-wheeler, loaded-up uh, arena show, stadium show, to smaller venues. And they had this, this clause in their, in their contract that said in every dressing room we want a bowl of M&M's with all the brown M&M's removed. Now my first thought when I see that is, that's pretty arrogant. These guys are divas, you know. Can't touch the brown M&M's. Here's what they discovered. As they took their big 18-wheeler loaded up show into these smaller venues that were used to somebody pulling up with two or three 18-wheelers, they brought in all this heavy equipment, all this stuff that couldn't go through certain doors, couldn't hang on certain, uh, uh, mach- the, the, uh, what's, what's it called? Help me, up in the rafters, wherever you put all the lighting and stuff, all the, all the equipment, the stages were not able to support them. And they found that those smaller venues were not reading the contract saying how much weight they could hold and how, much stuff the, how big the doors needed to be. So they said, we'll just do this. We'll put something really little in the contract. And if we walk in to a venue and we look at a bowl of M&Ms and there are brown M&Ms there, we know that they haven't read all the details of the contract. And we, we, we reserve the right if there's a brown M&M, we're canceling, we're pulling out. But what they used it for was they used it to say, okay, that brown M&M turned up. You guys are missing some stuff. Did you see that our equipment weighs this much? One time a stage almost collapsed because they had too much weight on it. Have you read how big the doors need to be to get all our equipment in? Have you read how much parking we need for all these, all these vehicles? All those little things that seemingly are little things reveal that the people weren't prepared for them. I need to understand that God is a holy God and, and there's still sin in my life that I need to deal with. It needs to be a sense of awe of the holiness of God and my sinfulness. Let me say this again. Church, Coastal Oaks Church, Many of you who walk with the Lord in obedience, it's the little things that the enemy uses to keep us from the best that God has for us. E, expect the joy to return. Verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I used to, I used to sing a chorus, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And I was singing and I realized, it's not my salvation. The chorus was thy salvation. God restored to me your joy. I need to expect my life to be a life of obedience, but a life of joy. And when the joy goes, it should be an indicator that God wants me back. Have you found that to be the case in your life when things aren't going well, you cry out to him more? He's saying, Come back to me. Come back to me. And I'll restore that joy. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, the, I think the first great awakening, wrote a summary of what happens when true revival comes. Number one, he said, Love for Jesus is increased. Number two, love for and obedience to the scriptures increases. Number three, people are led to the truth. And number four, people are led to a greater love for God and for man. I, I see that. When God's joy becomes His joy, I have a love for His Word and a love for others, and I want other people to know it. Accept responsibility for my sin. Want God's intervention. Avail myself to His creative hand. Know the contrast between my sinfulness and His holiness. Expect that joy. for my life to be a life of joy. Let her in. Never take God's presence for granted. Never. Never. Take God's presence for granted. Again, verse 11, do not banish me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Again, a believer doesn't have to say, God, don't take your spirit from me. But we do need to say, God, I need a sense of your presence every day of my life and I cannot take it for granted. I cannot take it for granted. We cannot take for granted the presence of God in this place. I hear from people over and over again. When I came to Coastal Oaks Church, I sensed something. I sensed the presence of God in that place. I sensed love. And I want to say, yay, God. But don't take it for granted. It can pretty soon be, way to go, Coastal Oaks. a boy, pastor. Don't take his presence for granted. You read the Old Testament. Again, walking through Ezekiel and, and how the the. God came to the place where his spirit left the temple. There was this incredible move of God and the people gathered and he just lifted his spirit from the temple and said, I'm gone. Folks, God can do that in an instant. If we just keep showing up status quo, God fixed somebody else today because I've checked all my lists. Never take his presence for granted. I was reading about a university recently that, in their charter, this is what they said. Their charter was to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. This university was founded to make sure that Jesus Christ was preeminent in every life of every student. In fact, they trained preachers and sent them out. They didn't watch the little stuff. They took it for granted that, that they had this privilege. That university is now Harvard University. Not exactly the place where you think of Jesus Christ as being lifted up and exalted, is it? Never take for granted God's presence. I remember going to youth camp years ago, and, and I don't know who started this. It was either the worship leader or the preacher, but they, uh, there's a big bell tower and they would ring that bell just, just periodically throughout the day, just at, at random times. And said, so whenever you hear the bell ring, stop with whoever you're with and pray. And, and because they, they said this, we want to be reminded every minute of every day that God is on the property. I like that. God was on the property. The Folks, this property here, I for sure want God to be on this property. But in a bigger sense, we want God to be on this property. Let's don't take his presence for granted E, don't miss this one. Evangelism will be the byproduct of this revival that God would start in your life. Evangelism will be the byproduct. Look at verse 13. Once once God restores and creates a clean heart and David pours his heart out to God in brokenness, then, verse 13, then I will teach the rebellious ways and sinners will turn to you. You want to know why your neighbor hasn't come to Christ? Maybe God's waiting to stir you. Then they'll be open. You want to know why Rockport is not not a, a completely Christian city where everybody's in church today? Maybe because God is waiting to work in you. Then he'll work in them. Evangelism is always a byproduct of revival. Someone said revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people that causes extraordinary results. I mentioned that prayer revival that uh, was started by Jeremiah Lamp here in, in New York City. It lasted for two years. When ships would arrive in port, they would sense something was going on in that city. One ship, the members of the crew, all of them got saved before they even got there because God was so moving and stirring in that city, folks. I can't explain that except for the hand of God. Story after story after story is told of sailors coming to that city and sensing it was a zone of holiness. God was there. Wouldn't it be something if not just this place but this city were like that? Where somebody drove down here to catch some redfish and said they caught a spirit of the genuine, sovereign God of the universe changing their life. By the way, that prayer revival that he started, it's, it's calculated that a million people came to know Christ because of that. Because some people just said, God, we want you to start right here in us, stir us. I read a blog recently, the title really intrigued me. This is the blog title by Russell Moore. The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. That got my attention. Listen to this. He writes: the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish emblem, I mean the Darwin emblem on his car. What is bumper sticker? Bumper. The next Charles Wesley might be a profanity spewing hip hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. Folks, that hit home with me. We have this picture that that God's going to take these good people and make them better. God's going to take messed up people and transform their lives. And it's only going to happen when He changes us. Then, I'll teach transgressors their ways. Then, sinners will be converted to you. The last church I pastored a we had a revival service and people were broken and crying. And one young lady came and she just shared how she was married and uh, her husband wasn't a believer, I think, at that time. She just was broken. How she had just kind of gone through the motions as a kid, never really surrendered her life completely to Christ. And at that that, uh, worship service, she said, God, I'm just giving you everything. And she went back home and God began to work in her husband's life. He came to know the Lord, walked in obedience with him. Um, they called me up one day and said, Pastor, our, our son wants to receive Jesus. What do we do? I said, you lead him to Jesus. She said, what do you mean? I said, just lead. you know how to do this. Do it. Pastor, you shirked a responsibility. No, I just showed her how to teach somebody how to fish. She led her son to Christ. They're preparing for ministry. I think even right now they're in ministry. Because that night at that service, that young lady became broken and said, God, use me. The evangelism became the byproduct of that stirring. And lastly, we declare God's praises. Look again at verse 15 Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Open my lips and I will declare your praise. I've used this story for 25 years. And some of you have heard it, but here it goes again. When I was a kid and we would go to the cafeteria, went to Luby's every Sunday after church, walked down the aisle and there would be the beef cutlet. Love the beef cutlet, it's my favorite. And I'd order the beef cutlet and she would say, do you want gravy on that? In those days, you didn't do this, but I would have said if I knew, duh. But I said, yes, ma'am. And she would have to stir the gravy. Maybe she didn't have to, but she did. You know why? Because the top part of the gravy, touching the the room temperature, always got cold. And I loved it when she stirred the gravy, because then I got hot gravy on my beef cutlet. We'll be done in a minute. You can go eat lunch, all right? And I believe that in the daily stuff of life, even the daily stuff of ministry, we get so in the routine and doing what we do that 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 layer, there's just a sensitivity, a coldness that's not there anymore, and it needs to be broken up. And God needs to stir us, break us. came across this list a while back. It's, I don't know who wrote it. It's author unknown. And it's a, it's a comparison of unbroken people, people that think everything's fine, and broken people. Unbroken people are concerned about being respectable. Broken people are concerned about being real. Unbroken people are concerned about what others think. Broken people say all that matters is what God knows. Unbroken people work to maintain our image and to protect our reputation. Broken people die to their own reputation. Unbroken people find it difficult to share their personal needs with others. Broken people are willing to be open and transparent. I hope as I go through this, you're seeing you're on one side of this list or the other. Unbroken people want to be sure that no one finds out about their sin. Broken people are willing to be exposed, and once they're broken, they don't care who knows about their sin. Unbroken people have a hard time saying, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit their failures and seek forgiveness. Unbroken people, when confessing sin, deal in generalities. Broken people deal in specifics. Unbroken people are concerned about the consequences of their sins. Broken people are repentant over their sins broken over their sins. Unbroken people, when there's a misunderstanding, will wait for the other person to come and ask forgiveness first. Broken people always take the initiative to reconcile. Unbroken people compare themselves with others, and they feel deserving of honor. Broken people compare themselves to the holiness of God and feel a desperate need for His mercy. That's David. Unbroken people don't think they have anything to repent of, Broken people have a continual hard attitude of repentance. Broken people, Unbroken people don't think they need revival. They think everybody else does. Broken people have a continual sense of the need of the presence of God in their life. Verse 17 says, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. Does God need to stir you today? If he needs to stir you today, then you need to be on your knees saying, oh God, create in me a clean heart. Let's pray together.